The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Hi, geological listeners. I'm excited to have the Chinese Nutritional Strategies app I developed be one of the sponsors for this episode. In addition to herbs and acupuncture, what single food can I recommend for my patients in order to nourish kidney yin, supplement spleen chi, and drain dampness? The Chinese Nutritional Strategies app has answered this question, and I'll share it with you at the next break in the show. Since 1979, Lhasa OMS, the largest acupuncture supplier in the U.S., has brought you the very best in supplies from top brands such as Sarin, DBC, Evergreen, and Mayway. Fair prices, attentive customer service, and an unrivaled selection on supplies makes them a great go-to for your acupuncture clinic. Lhasa OMS helps to foster and support our acupuncture community by bringing you podcast shows like Geological that help East Asian medicine practitioners to share their clinical experience and learn from each other. For over 40 years, Lhasa OMS has helped both practitioners and patients by donating needles and supplies that have helped millions in need, provided schools with resources to support the training of thousands of students, and given supplies to hundreds of clinics throughout the nation. Lhasa OMS, supporting our industry and your practice with tools for your clinic and mind. Hey friends, before we get into today's conversation, I want to remind you that Geological is coming up to its first anniversary. And for that anniversary show, I'd like to have one of you join me. So if you've been listening to the show and you've been thinking, hey, I'd like to be on Geological or I've got something that I'd like to discuss or I've got something that I'd like to share, send me an email or better yet, record your voice. Send me the idea that you'd like to talk about and I'm going to put all of the good ideas into a hat. I'm going to pull one out and have one of you on the show. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and having one of you join me here on the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Geological. I am very excited to be sitting down for a cup of tea. Well, across several time zones, but still sitting down for a cup of tea with Sabine Wilms. Sabine Wilms is an author. She's a translator. She's done amazing books for our profession. One of which, her newest, Humming with Elephants. Oh my God. I'm not here to plug stuff. You guys got to go buy this book. I'm very excited that we're going to sit down. We're going we're gonna to talk about the book. We're going to talk about some other stuff. We're going to talk about what's in the book. That's even better and Chinese medicine in general, and maybe some Chinese language. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure where the conversation goes, because when you start exploring a thing about resonance, who knows where you go? Sabine, welcome to Geological. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's a total pleasure and honor. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. So I, I'm curious. I, I, I want to start, I want to go back in time a little bit. How is it, because I, you know, Again, this book of yours is gorgeous. I want to know how it is that you so fell in love with the Chinese language and Chinese medicine. Way back. You want as, to go way back. As far back as we need to go. It was, I was in high school and my family, everybody in my family is doctors, biomedical doctors. My, both of my parents, my sister went into medical school. Um, my uncles and aunts, my grandmother is one of the first practicing pediatricians in Germany, mm. female, her husband, everybody. 
And when I was 18, I wanted to get as far away from that as possible. So I was, and I have a dad who knows everything because he's a very famous doctor. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do Chinese because he doesn't know anything about China. <laughs> um, and I love traveling and I, and for whatever bizarre reason, I love dead languages. I actually started out studying Latin and Greek and then I just, there's been so much research done in Latin and Greek and everything is translated. So classical Chinese is just a wonderful field. And I absolutely love translating, reading, understanding, engaging with the classical texts. So I guess I'm a nerd. Total nerd. Are you kidding? I'm such a nerd and it's okay. <laughs> it makes me really, really happy to spend 12 hours sitting there and reading the Neijing. So... And then I, I got into East Asian studies, and then I had this wonderful professor in medical anthropology mm. who was just fascinated with the fact that I can speak Chinese and I have access to, to these, these medical texts. And he really opened my eyes to how medicine can be such a powerful window into the culture. So that's how I got into studying medicine really as a way of trying to understand Chinese culture. And then, so I got my PhD, and then I started teaching at a at a Chinese medicine school in Tucson. Um, and I love teaching practitioners because you guys are writing books for practitioners because compared to a normal, you know, university when you're a history professor or, or literature professor or something, you guys actually really care about my work. And you take what I produce, whether it's gynecology or pediatrics, or even, you know, the this new book coming with elephants, and you make a difference in, in your patient. I believe, and that's the feedback I get, that my work makes a difference in alleviating suffering of all your patients. So I'm so lucky that I'm in this field. It's like, how could I be anywhere else? I'm delighted that you're in our field because your works... Yeah, it's the old stuff and digging things out of Wen Yen Wang. I mean, I I can speak and I understand some modern Chinese. It's rough, but you get into that classical stuff. I mean, they don't even have punctuation for goodness sakes. Well, they have particles. That's where grammar comes in. Can I make a plug for classical Chinese grammar? Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Because, well, it's just that that in my mind, classical Chinese is you can't just do the etymology and ignore the grammar, which is how I started learning classical Chinese. But you know, the the shoots, the, the the empty words that when you when you learn classical or when I learned classical Chinese when I lived in Taiwan, that's where I started studying classical Chinese, they would just talk about the empty particles. Oh, these are just the empty particles that you kind of wave off. And that's just not true. These are these are the equivalent of punctuation marks. And they give you, I mean, there is a stretch. There, there, there's something where a sentence can have so many different layers of meaning, but at the same time, it's also very clear. And the more you know about classical Chinese, the more you can be very clear whether something is a proper or potential interpretation or it's not. And these particles are really important in, in understanding that. So they're not empty. They actually are sort of like signposts. They help you to orient yeah. to, the, to the text. Now, well, you know, maybe we'll come back at some point and do a super nerdy like introduction to reading Wen Yen Wen or something. That would actually... Oh, man. You know, I don't know how many of our listeners would be into that, but I bet there'd be a few geeky ones. We could, we'll come back to that. And then I guess the other thing that got me interested in fertility or Yangsheng mm -hmm. was that I was, I ended up being a farmer. I had a biodynamic farm in New Mexico and farming is all of you're doing it the way I like to do it. It's all about fertility. I was raising goats and apples and and herbs and it's it's you're working with soil and it's fertility and then I was a kind of a bad farmer right and then I was going to all these conferences teaching about yangsheng and fertility and reproductive medicine and at some point I just put the two together that nurturing life and fertility in the medical sense 
And in the agricultural sense, it's the same thing. And that's really where I, I now feel like I have this life where it all fits together, where everything, I have had all these bizarre experiences in my life. And that's, you know, part of like music. I'm talking about resonance, humming. It's all about music. I'm a violinist. It's like everything, all the experiences in my life have kind of come together in, in, in making sense at this point. It's been a long time. Other people figure out what they do when they're 20 years old. But. I'm not sure how many actually do. I know some folks that at a very young, tender age, they knew it. I got a younger brother, age like 11 or something. I'm going yeah. to be a musician. That's it. He's a musician. Yeah. You know, but most people that I know, and maybe it's just a crowd I run around in, we're not so sure. And there's, there, you know, there's a phase here. There's a phase there. You, you go in this direction, you go in that direction. And if you're lucky to live long enough, maybe it comes together with a certain coherence where you can look back 30 years and go, oh, I can see how that stream from back then is alive right now. But it's, it, it, it takes living into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So resonance actually. All right. So of all the chapters of the Huangdi Neijing, why this one? Oh dear. Um, well, <laughs> I taught a class with with doc, the wonderful, most esteemed Dr. Long Yuhui at NUNM, the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. It was the third year in a three-year series on classical texts. So it was kind of the, the crowning achievement of their education in, in classical texts, which is the cornerstone of their doctoral program. And the third year is all about the Neijing. So Dr. Long and I, and we had a classical text committee, we got together and we, we created a curriculum for, for the chapters that are, that we all considered the most important mm -hmm. in the Neijing for beginning practitioners. And it was, and then the classes kind of evolved and Suman 5 ended up being a class that just ended up taking an entire semester, an entire course of 12 weeks to cover. And originally I was going to do, well, originally I was going to do, I think a textbook for classical Chinese, and it was going to have Suwen one through five, and then a bunch of clinical chapters in it. And then I was like, okay, this is way too much. It's going to get way too long. So we're just going to do Suwen one through five. And then I ended up just doing Suban 5 because I just kept going back to it and quoting it in all my teachings. I just refer to it over and over. And, you know, really the resonance of, of yin and yang. I mean, that's the, that's, to me, that's the, so the foundation of the medicine that it kind of makes sense. But it was supposed to be a much bigger project. Well, it still might be. You never know is plenty big enough. Well, yeah, but there's other books to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a rich chapter and it has a history of wonderful commentaries. So what do you particularly love about this chapter? I think it's the ideal, it's the perfect introduction to the to the foundations of our medicine. It just, you know, it it it's about yin and yang and it's about the correlation between the macro the resonance and it's more than a correlation it's really about the real the interrelationship between the macrocosm and the microcosm and it just lays it out it starts with a very simple thing where it talks about the weather about the clouds and the rain and then it brings it to the level of the flavors and and then it goes into the body. I mean, it just covers everything in very, in a very succinct way. And it's, it's just, to me, it, this chapter is so deep and that's why, why I have, I mean, I've canned this, I've been working on this book for like five years and I've canned it so many times and said, I'm not touching that. And, you know, I don't think anybody can ever create a perfect translation of Suwen 5 because it's so, it's kind of like the Lao Tzu. It's so, deep and complex that I'm going to give you one perspective on it and one possible way of reading it. 
and you can create another way that's just as beautiful and profound and accurate as mine. There is no right and wrong, or maybe there, there, I mean, no, there are ways that you can read it that are, that are grammatically wrong. So there are ways of doing it wrong. And there's also many ways of doing it right. Yeah. There's no, I don't think one English version can ever, and that's why I ended up with all these commentaries and all these discussions and all these, like in my book, I have all these notes where I'm choosing to translate it as this, right? But it could also be read as this. And that's based on, you know, 1500 years of commentary tradition. And I believe that I'm not smart enough with a blank slate to go and read the Neijing. It's a text that's very corrupted, that's from a really ancient time, that's really, really difficult. There are passages in there that, that I really don't get. So I'm not an enlightened sage. So I think it's crazy for us, or maybe not crazy, but I think it's arrogant to throw out 1,500 years of commentary tradition. And I really wanted to give readers a sense of the depth and, and the contributions that generation after generation after generation of scholar physicians, of these incredibly educated, wise, experienced people have added to, un, to an understanding of the Neijing, because I think a lot of times that gets lost in the English translations. Well, one of the really delightful things I remember when I was first in acupuncture school and reading through, I mean, we had Unschuld at that point. I remember the, the Nanjing in particular. You'd have each of the difficulties and then you'd have pages yes. of commentary, pages of commentary. And there were people that were talking to each other across the centuries. In fact, they were not just talking to each other. Sometimes they were arguing with each other, vehemently arguing and disagreeing yeah. Across the centuries. And I loved it. And I think that the Nanjing is actually, Unschuld's Nanjing translation is a wonderful contribution. And of all of his books, that's my favorite book, I think. And it is, you know, the language is not that easy to, re it's not pre-digested to make it appealing to modern clinical practitioners. Oh, not at all. No, if, if you're looking for the answer, you're not going to find it in there. I'll tell you that. It's a hard book to read. It requires attentiveness. It, yeah, it, it, it requires a, a really great interest and nerdy bend. And part of what I'm hoping with my book is that it's a little bit that I'm, I'm writing for practitioners. That's with this book, my other books, it was like, you know, my pediatrics, I know it's, it's for really advanced practitioners, and I don't sell a lot of those books, and I, know, I, I don't try and push it on people. I'm very clear that my pediatrics book is not appropriate for a beginning practitioner because a nor it, it's not pre-digested. Nobody's holding your hand. It's just Sun Tzu Miao is throwing these formulas at you, and they're very powerful formulas, and they would be really dangerous to apply if you, if you don't have the proper training. But what I'm hoping with this book is... I really want to show a broader audience of Chinese medicine practitioners that the classics are relevant to contemporary Chinese medicine because I believe they are. And that's what I get in my, you know, many, many years of teaching at these conferences or when I do these one day or weekend seminars is, is you know, a work like Unschuld's is, is so it's so academic and it's scholarly and it's just if you don't have the the proper academic training it could turn you off just because it's so thick and like you said there's commentary and then there's the next commentary and it's it so i was i was really struggling I, and that's kind of how i started out with this book and and then i just completely scrapped it all and started from scratch and rewrote i rewrote that book like five times <sighs> in the way that i hope that it makes it i want it to be i want to show a normal Chinese medicine practitioner that the classics are relevant. Well, I, I think you have a very interesting way of showing that it's relevant. You use the term pre-digested. And I would say your book is completely non-pre-digested. It's more like a prebiotic. <laughs> right. I so, know, I'm, 
in this crazy bubble. So. No, no, no. I mean, it's 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 a phenomenal bubble. Your instructions in the beginning about read it slowly. Yeah. Along with naps and walks and cups of tea and you know walking by the water. So I mean, I think of it as like sipping whiskey and talking to friends. I think of it as something yeah. that I come back to really like a book of poetry. There are ways that you have in there of giving us something, but you don't nail anything down. It's not like, oh, here's the thing and here's what it is. And and you read this and get it. And now you're going to understand it. It's more like you weave these questions. You bring in these various influences. You hint and tease at different kinds of things. You bring in some comments from people across the ages, I find that I get done reading a section, you know, and it's only a couple of pages and it's like, that's enough for today. So, that's, that's, that makes right? sense. To me. Yeah. And sometimes I go back the next day and reread it again, or sometimes I'll pick it up a week later and read certain portions of it again, because it leaves me with a sense of inquiry it leaves me with a sense of, I mean, I feel like my perceptual field is a little bit different. My thinking process is a little bit altered after reading it. Good. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't like giving lectures, even though that's, that's what I, you know, do a lot of the time for a living. I my favorite classes are, and the, in a way, the book is a way to replicate this wonderful seminar that was like that was the treat for me to get to teach these naging classes at NUNM because I put the students through such a hard time in the first year of study memorizing the characters and learning the grammar and and you know and we read Confucius we read the great learning we read Lao Tzu and Zhuang Tzu and poetry and I I throw all this stuff at them and I make them struggled very hard with classical Chinese. And then in the second year, they get the Shanghanlun and Jingwei, um, which is more clinical and it's much easier and, and more straightforward. It is, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, they're formulas, they're, they're symptoms. And then it, it's that one, the grammar is fairly straightforward. But in the third year, you get to the Neijing. And it is such a, it is such a fun book to explore in a class over the course of 12 weeks. And the idea, you know, that we had a different student prepare a section each week, and then we would get together and discuss it together. Mm. And it was just such a fun class. I love doing it. So in a way, the book is a way to, is about replicating that format of doing an advanced seminar where everybody comes, where you bring your experience and your knowledge and you, your work to it. And, and then I engage with you and, and I don't think it can be a one-way street where I know everything because we're, we're, we're talking about literature that was created, I believe, by, by enlightened beings. I mean, by sa the, the sages, right? This is what the, the Yellow Emperor was a sage and he's talking about these teachings from the sages that were thousands of years before that. So who am I to tell you? Well, it's over my head. It's over your head. We don't, I firmly believe that we don't have the understanding of, we don't live integrated into the macrocosm the way these people did, because we are separated through central heating and air conditioning and electricity. We don't grow our own food. We, we don't have the connection to, we don't have the knowledge of the stars, the, the cycles of the stars. I'm trying to understand tides here because I live on a beach and I can only do this walk that I love to do when the tides are a certain, when they're low and they have to be incoming or outcoming. So I am trying to wrap my head around stars and moon and, and, and tides and it's just mind boggling. And I think there's just so much that we don't know that they knew. They had a different kind of wisdom, insights. And I think that books like this, they're not how-to manuals. Yeah. I mean, they really are looking, I suspect, to crack our perception 
open in a certain way. Because then you can start to learn some things. But it it requires a different stance, so to speak. Does that make sense? I love the, the crack open our perception. It's about cracking open the idea that we know what's white and black and right and wrong and this and that and yes and no. I love Zhuangzi. I mean, Zhuangzi is, 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 is my hero. And I just, I think that's that piece, which is really challenging for a, for a medical practitioner, oh, right? To yes. be in the space of not knowing. Because, yes, exactly. This is a very curious paradox. I was going to say, especially for Chinese medicine practitioners, but that, that, that may not be true. It may be for any medicine practitioner. We do want to know. There's a lot that we should know. We should be very schooled in what the stuff that you're supposed to be schooled in. Right. And people expect to get some help from us. And, you know, we better, we better show up with some goods. That's only fair. And at the same time, so often patients come in and the truth is we don't know. And that, that's not a stopping place. That's the starting place. And how do you navigate when you don't know? That to me is a very profound and powerful question that I suspect all practitioners have to face in being any kind of a doctor. And it's some it's one that I have thought about very hard because my dad was the first person in Germany who did who treated AIDS, who did he went to Seattle to learn about bone marrow mm. transplants. I the, all the stuff that I know nothing about. He was a director of an internal medicine hospital. And he did all these cutting edge things. And a lot of his patients must have died. And right? Because mm -hmm. he he was doing things that they didn't know what they were at the time. And I had a boyfriend and I was talking to my boyfriend's dad, who was also a doctor. And I was telling him that my dad drives me crazy because he knows everything. And he has this, and it is so hard. To, my, I am totally like my dad. My dad and I are like, we are so, I am so close to him and we drive each other nuts. But he is so opinionated and he knows everything. And it was another old retired doctor who had to point out to me that 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 is that's that generation of biomedical doctors they had to know everything because if my dad started questioning his treatments he and and you know do, doctor biomedical doctors have a really high rate of substance abuse and suicide and and all of this stuff so i think in chinese medicine we I'm hoping we are much more honest about that we don't know, because in Chinese medicine, there are so many ways in which you can address. There is no one right way. And that's so hard for students. And I think it's really dangerous. This in bio, It's one of those things. And I, I'm not an anti-biomedicine person at all. I think all medicine, all doctors are healers and do the best they can and and but in biomedicine, there is this, this huge pressure that the doctor is the authority and the doctor has to know. And because of that, I think it, it closes inquiry and it's really hard on people's heart and, and mind. Because if you're a doctor, you must know that you don't know. But you can't doubt yourself if you're a very famous biomedical doctor. And in a way, and I'm not a practitioner, I don't see patients. Or I say I'm a practitioner of Chinese medicine, but I'm not a clinical practitioner. I do practice Chinese medicine every day, all day long, just on myself and, and just in a different way. But um, in a way, if you're a doctor and a patient comes to you, you have to be the authority. Yes. And sometimes that authority sits or stands with you at the edge of, well, we don't know. And then how do we find out? Where do you move? What What's the next step after I don't know? Yeah. And how do you make, how do you make peace with that? I think that's a great question. How do you make peace with that? Yeah. And that's where, to me, the classical text, that's the big contribution in the classics and also in the philosophy that the true 
knowledge is in not knowledge. The Tao that can be Taoed, the way that can be walked, is not the constant Tao, right? The Tao that can be taught. Anytime you see that's not the real Tao. Yeah, from the very beginning, we're in deep water with this stuff. I don't know. And I see it as my job to just kind of kind of open the curtains, be like, well, and, and part of it is that I've spent the last five years teaching beginning Chinese medicine students and kind of really opening their eyes. Day one, they had me for the beginning Chinese history and culture class for beginning classical text. We did a Chinese culture immersion retreat. They got a whole lot of Sabina. And and part of that is embracing this this other way of thinking and honoring this, you know, and you have to have knowledge and you have to have systematized textbooks and you have to have licenses and board exams and you have to have exams if you have an institutionalized medicine. So weird, Chinese medicine is in this weird place where at, at least at NCNM or NUNM, it was it was it was always this tension between, on the one side we teach, you know what they need to know and what can be tested and the board exams, we teach them knowledge that's that's graspable and 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 you need to be able to communicate to patients and to colleagues, you have to know, and at the same time when you are more advanced at some point, when you know enough, you have to know that you don't know. We're going to take a short break here and find out from Toby how you can nourish yin at the same time that you've got dampness. There's foods to do that. Hi, Toby here again. I hope you're enjoying the conversation in the show. I use the Chinese Nutritional Strategies app to answer the question, what single food can I recommend for my patients in order to nourish kidney yin, supplement spleen chi, and drain dampness? The answer, drawn from the Chinese medical classic text, is millet. The Chinese Nutritional Strategies app has diagnosis patterns for millet, as well as more than 300 common foods, along with their temperature, flavor, actions, indications, notes, and seasonal recommendations. This database is searchable by any of these criteria, and sorting through it allows the practitioner to compile a list of recommended foods and then share those recommendations via email or as a hard copy with their patient. More information is available at ChineseNutritionApp.com. Now let's listen to this next half of the show. At a certain point, all of the knowing that we've acquired, and it's very helpful because we do get to pass the exam, we get to get a license, we get to get started. I often think of that stuff as scaffolding. It's the stuff that lets us get started. It's the stuff, especially as Westerners, that allows us to have a different way of viewing the world, having a different way of viewing the body, having a different way of viewing physiology. We can begin to see into this other thing, but at a certain point, all that stuff that we learned and all those great things our teachers told us, maybe not all of them, but many of them, <laughs> scaffolding that gets taken down at a certain point. Yeah. You know, and yeah. we're left with our experience and we're left with our inquiry and we're left with our not knowing. And that's where you have you're gradually replacing maybe that institutionalized knowledge with another scaffolding, which is your clinical experience. Exactly. Which, of course, changes over the years as well. Yeah. And I don't have that. And that's where I, you know, bring in all the commentaries from the histories. But on the other hand, I have learned that my understanding of farming, of irrigation, of, and you're laughing, <laughs> you're laughing, but I'm not kidding. I, I think that my, my experience flood irrigating an orchard over many years and managing waterways, I mean, that's perfect for, for, for understanding chi flow. It's exactly the same. They use the same language, brooks and streams and springs and blockages, congestions, draining, overflowing, spilling. It, it's, it's the same language. Yeah. Microcosm, macrocosm. There you are. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I want to jump into a couple things from the book if we can. Sure. Okay. So 
I've got just enough Chinese to be dangerous. Oh no, oh no, oh no. No, no, I'm not gonna be speaking Chinese, but I just I mean there there are some things that I read them and they just man, it it was like uh I don't know. I can remember when I first started studying Chinese and I had this incredible epiphany one day. I'm not kidding you, you're gonna think this is hilarious. But the truth is I had this incredible epiphany one day when I took this piece of Chinese that I was given in school and I realized that I had it right side up. Right? <laughs> what was it? I, I don't remember. It's just, you know, some basic terminology, <laughs> right? But I'm, be, I'm one character or, or a sentence. No, no, no. It was like it was like a sheet of paper with a bunch of characters on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I just I mean just remember at one point going, <laughs> oh, this is right side up. Yay! You learned something. <laughs> it's silly, but I can remember this incredible delight that ran through my entire body when I recognized I have the paper the right side up. It's a good place to start. So I was reading. And- I know I love taking the students to the the garden. There's a wonderful Chinese garden in Portland. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, and and. I love taking the students there and they would recognize characters. It's fun, isn't it? It's so fun. Yeah. 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 Anyway, very so you've got this lovely little riff on change, Bienhua. Oh dear. Yes. And, and you talk about, I mean, Bienhua means change, but then you go into each one, you go into Bien as being a certain kind of change and Hua as being like the transformative you know, rug pulled out from under your feet, transformative kind of change. Mm-hmm. For the listener's benefit, can you talk to us a little bit about the what a bien type change looks like and what a hua type change looks like? And maybe there's some suggestions from the book about how you deal with each of those particular kinds of processes. Hmm. Yeah, that's a deep question. I should have never agreed to this interview. <laughs> Too late now. <laughs> um, and and really, you know, I I struggled with translating these two characters forever and ever and ever, because I used to have I think bien as transformation and hua as change, and it was just like I just picked I don't know if Wiseman picked them or Unschuld or or somehow I just and I always was was kind of like, I know they're different. They're used in different contexts there. I know, you know, it's like, it's so often that it's like, it's like Jing and Mai mm. for channel and vessel. We have these characters that, that they're different characters. And in English, they're translated with words that are kind of have the same meaning, but there is a real difference between using Jing and Mai, there are associations, you know, whether it's the flesh radical, the the it, it, it Jing versus the water radical, and and there are, and you can go into all these examples where two characters mean the or or they're translated in English with one word, but they're really two different concepts. And if you translate them with one word in English, at some point the reader gets confused because they're like, wait, this doesn't make sense because there, there, there's contradictions where in Chinese, there is a layer of specificity that it's really hard to express in English. And change is one of those concepts where the classical Chinese were really hung up on change because everything is qi and qi is always changing. And this appreciation for change if you understand change that's the key to being a doctor a sage a farmer a ruler knowing change is knowing a stockbroker for that matter exactly everything everything Mm -hmm. a sourdough baker Mm. you have to know i love to bake a cheesemaker i love to make fermenting things you have to be able to look at your sourdough and read where the bubbles are at and know what the temperature of the room was when you started it, what kind of grain you used. If you use rye versus wheat versus white flour versus coarse meal versus ground flour, blah, blah, blah. It all, you might get a 
the bubbles might look the same, but depending on the all these other things, it completely changes how you're going to treat that sourdough. When you're going to, how much you're going to need it, how much liquid, how much other stuff you're going to add to it, when you're going to put it in the pan, how warm you're going to bake it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense, which, which is why I'm so interested in the difference between bien and hua at this point. I mean, it's really got me thinking, wow, we're always looking at change. I mean, I Ching, right? Book of changes. We know nothing stays the same, but you know, the question is, it's like, what's the pace or the tempo or the quality or the type? Because this is just my sense. If we've got a sense of what kind of change we're looking at, we can tune our treatment to yes. match what that is. Yeah. Okay. And that's what it's all about, that as a clinical practitioner or a ruler or whatever it is that you're doing, you're looking at the present. You're looking at what you got. You've got, you're taking a history, you're looking at the past and what makes a good doctor or a good ruler or a good farmer is to know the direction where the arrow is going with the dynamic, the dynamic, mm -hmm. the, 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 the force, you know, whether it's going up, you, you've got your, your present place, but it's really, if you know where it's coming from, you know, whether it's going up or it's going down and you also know how fast it's going. And then, you know, how you're going to interfere if you need to do anything. Maybe maybe the body is on its way already to establishing this, this dynamic equilibrium. And if you're going to introduce a really strong down-draining formula, you're going to weaken a body in a way that's going to turn it into the other extreme. So, yes, yeah, so back to being... So I think that's the, that's the trick to being a good, a good doctor or good anything is, is, is understanding change and knowing how to read the present. And that's what the Tao is. That's, that's the core of the Tao is it's all change. So I ended up, let's see. And I, I actually took notes because I knew you were going to ask me this and, and it's like they're being and hua. but what I ended up for the book, I believe is alteration for being and hua for transformation. Mm -hmm. And, and transformation is a little bit of a not the perfect translation, maybe. It is if you're a nerd and if you read my commentary. Because literally, transformation means you are transcending the form. Another way you could put it is metamorphosis. It's hua is a, is a sudden change that is irreversible. And bien, just this is just in general. If you're trying to tease apart the difference between these two characters... Of course, knowing that in modern Chinese, bianhua just means change. And to a certain extent, they can be sometimes used interchangeably, depending on if you have a poem where one of them sounds better than the other, or you have a sloppy writer, or, you know, just like in English, sometimes words are used very specifically. And my belief is in medical technical literature, mm. a lot of times this language was very, very specialized and it was used. Classical Chinese is so condensed that people used words very, very carefully. And we owe it to them in translation to not be sloppy and not to say, ah, oh, it's chabudo, you know, it's like, it's whatever. It's, it's kind close. Of it's in the ballpark. Yeah. It, I, my experience is that, that, that they are very conscious. And when they use a word like hua, they had the association, which any person who has a PhD in Chinese studies or any traditional scholar physician will know Zhuangzi talking about hua. And when you open a big classical Chinese dictionary, the first thing you get about the first definition you get about hua is the way it is used in Zhuangzi. And Zhuangzi was so important because Zhuangzi is kind of the gold standard for beautiful literature. So Zhuangzi talks about um, the transformation from the from the big fish to the bird, which is a total change. That is that it's a transformation. There's something that happens that is irreversible. And a lot of times in the Neijing, Hua is used in a sense where there is where something is created. So it is it is creative. 
it is it's 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 a kind of change that that creates something new. And being is used in the sense of day and night altering low and high tides, the changes of the seasons, gradual change. The more comfortable kind of change, maybe the kind of change. Oh yeah, this again, I feel like I'm getting nowhere kind of change, but you're like incrementally drip by drip getting somewhere. Yeah. Whereas often people come in, you know, with some horrible thing that happened and it's a, you know, it's a hua type change. This is where you come in with your clinical experience. Mm -hmm. And this is why I love having these conversations with practitioners, with clinical practitioners, because you can take what I just told you. And I love team teaching that this way, where you take what I just said and you're, you come up with an example from clinic. So it, give me an example for where it, the real clinical difference. Okay. So ah, it's a great question. Yeah. Oh man. Wait, the tables just got turned on me. Exactly. Yes. Very good. Very sneaky, Ms. Wilms. Okay. So let's, uh, let's take fertility for a moment. Fertility is often a situation where someone's actually looking for a hua. They're actually looking for a hua. They want to transform from not, Mm -hmm. not pregnant to pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. That that's a type of a metamorphosis. Yes. But they're making this slow incremental change, right? I mean, maybe their periods are really a mess and you got to get that cleaned up. And and maybe, you know, there's issues like, well, actually, when the woman's fertile, I mean, the guy's traveling all the time. They don't even have a chance to have sex, right? Mm-hmm. So small, in, you know, incremental bien type changes like, well, maybe the husband gets a different job so they can actually be together enough to create a family, mm-hmm. right? And of course, people go to IVF looking for a Hua type treatment, right? So there, there's situations where people are, are wanting it. There's something they don't have. They desire to have it and they're looking to get it in a Hua type way. They call that success and we call ourselves good practitioners when we give it to them. Then there's the opposite. There's a person that's gone through a Hua type experience and whatever they've gotten out, whatever they have transformed into, whatever they have metamorphosized into, irreversibly turned into, they'd like to get rid of it. And so I have found in my clinical practice, it's helpful to know, number one, mm-hmm. what kind of change are they looking for? Are they looking for a BN type change or a Hua type change? Secondly, what kind of change are they actually in the midst of? Because that tells me something about their psychoemotive state. So I, I've started taking this is from reading your book. I started taking these two and and bringing them into the clinic in a way where I just I leave myself open to. I, I mean, I bring it in as a question. Really, is this is this a bien process or a hua process that they're in? And what's what's called for to help them with that? Does that answer your question? Does that help? It does. It does. I mean, the, the, your readers are the ones that. <laughs> I think so, and and I think the the example of pregnancy is the perfect example for. It is a com- and every process of change in a way is a combination of bien and hua. Absolutely. And that's where and this is kind of what I love about this book is you talk about yin and yang. And then there's yang within yin, and then there's the yin within the yang. I mean, there, there's, you can talk about it at a, at a really simple level where hua is a creative change. So giving birth or getting pregnant, that's conception. That's a, that's a hua. That's a creative, irreversible change. But at the same time, you're right. You can also see it in terms of all the little incremental being changes that are taking place throughout this whole process. And what is the appropriate role of, of, of you in interfering, supporting, manipulating that process? I love the way you use the word interfering. I don't often hear practitioners talk about interfering. I hear them talk about treatment. I, talk them, I hear them talking about helping their patients. I'd love that you use the word interfere. I, I think, and why do I enjoy that? Because it really makes me ponder for a moment about what is it that I'm going to be doing with this person? 
Because if I'm interfering, I want to make sure I'm interfering in some sort of beneficial way, hopefully with as light a touch as possible. And I think my thinking on that has evolved based on studying Sun Tzu so much. Mm. Tell us more about that. That Sun Tzu talks about this. In, and, and of course, I've had my head in gynecology and pediatrics, but also in his volume on dietetics, he talks about how food is just another kind of medicine. It's, it's, it's drugs. And if you take any substance, even a cup of tea, and introduce it to your body unaware, you are, everything is chi. So everything that you introduce into your body changes the, the dynamic of chi. The, the equilibrium, it's a dynamic equilibrium. And it's not a static, perfect balance. It's, it's this, it's this, and I love that, that fluidity and that's change. And it's always, sometimes there's more yang and sometimes more, there's more yin and that's the way it's supposed to be. And um, sometimes it's appropriate to interfere. And maybe sometimes it's not because it's just that pendulum going back and forth. Um, so he talks in the volume on dietetics, he talks about how drugs are like soldiers. And sometimes we need to release the soldiers to the borders to protect the country. But a lot of times there is a risk when you release soldiers that they then, you let them loose and then they turn around and they, they run out of control and they might do more damage in your own country or they might do more damage than or they might do unanticipated damage after they have protected your defenses from the outside. So, you know, you, you don't want to give somebody some really intense treatment if you can just tell them to warm their feet at night. Or, or you know, you, I mean, the idea is you want to create this equilibrium. And, and to me, that's really, that's what I love about, about the classics, that there is this, it's not just about treating illness. And of course, I have a privileged perspective because I don't treat sick people. So you deal with situations. People don't come to you generally, I assume. Um, they come to you when their equilibrium is pretty much out of whack. So you, Yes, yes, that, I would say that's true. Yeah, so you need to, and they have certain expectations. Of course they do. To do something to make them feel better. Whereas I have my head in the classics and it's all about chi wei bing. You, you treat what is not yet diseased. You, you, you dig the well before you're thirsty and you are dealing with a situation where you're in the middle of a warfare, a war, and then, and this is a quote from that Su and Five too, you, you're in the, you, you don't, forge your weapons while you're in the middle of the war and you don't dig your well when you're thirsty. So what that says to me is even when someone comes in and for them, it's some kind of an emergency or they wouldn't be coming in to see me. Yeah. It's still really important not to forget that there's an equilibrium that can be found and to attend to the dynamic, right? Attend to the dynamic, because if the equilibrium can come of its own accord, or if it can be enticed in a in a more gentle fashion, well, I mean, there's a line too. Or, you know, what is that line? I think it's from uh, the Tao Te Ching, right? That you know, the the best rulers are the ones where the people say we did it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. All right. I've got so much more I want to ask you, so I'm probably just going to invite you back for another time, but. <laughs> you're in trouble now you're gonna have to start sending me tea <laughs> uh, you know i was just thinking I, I could send you some tea i got some great stuff from taiwan recently i'll send you some you'll love it oh i'm totally bribable with tea okay good All right. <laughs> Actually, no, you said you will you were going to be up here so so we can do this in person we can have a hot toddy by the beach we'll have a hot toddy by the beach and i'll bring you some tea as well anyway one more question before we get off here and we can have the whales I'm it. I'm all for it. It won't be humming with elephants. It'll be the spouting of the whales. With I whales. I saw one like a week ago. <laughs> Lovely. All right. I want to get back to your book again for just a second. I love the way that you work with the language. You're so thoughtful with it. 
you know, again, I, I know enough Chinese to be a danger to myself. And so sometimes I look at the, at the words that you work with or the, or the, some of the ideas that you are, are nonging, right? You're like yeah. manipulating. And I just find it enticing. So I want to ask you. And it's based on five years of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Oh, yeah. Well, and all the years that came before that, too. So let's not forget that. It's, it's, I love this chapter, and I have so much respect. And I really had a hard time publishing this book. It was very stressful because I just feel like it is so deep, and it requires that kind of respect from anybody. So you should drink it with a hot toddy or read it with a hot toddy. Anyway, I want to get back to this question. So you were talking about the elements and you were talking about two, right? Like usually gets translated as earth. But in your book, you say that you rather enjoy thinking of two, not as earth, but as soil, right? And when I think of soil, I think of something that's like something simultaneously in the process of rotting and generating new life at the very same moment. I'm curious. I just, I would just like to hear you riff a little bit more about what if instead of calling to earth, we did call it soil. What if we thought of it as soil? I would have loved to do that. And it's kind of a perfect example for my struggles with terminology in this book. I don't want to have the book use foreign language. It was really important to me that this book is readable to your, or maybe not your average, your average classically inclined Chinese medicine practitioner. Mm. And that's, I, I can't say five elements, even though that's the standard term. I know it's so totally uh, wrong. I, I think I did dynamic agents five phases works better. The elements, I, that's one where I've kind of, I'm on this mission where I just, I cannot get myself to say elements, even though I know that's what everybody uses. With earth, the problem with earth is that in English, earth has so many different meanings, you know, as in the planet earth. Soil is much more specific and the meaning of that dynamic agent, it should be soil. So I love the fact that you picked up on that. And that that's exactly the association that you should have. It's, it's dirt. It's, it's, it's black, rich, fertile. It's the, the, the stuff where, you know, a little bright green sprout comes out of. And it's alive with earthworms. And it's what feeds everything. It's, it's the spleen and earth. It's, I mean, the spleen stomach. It's right. It's, but I, I decided to stick with earth because that's just the way we know the five elements. And... I felt like if I changed it to soil, it would, it, it would make, it would force people who are just in their training. They're, they're just so, everybody's used to using earth as the, as the, the earth element, you know? So I just didn't want to be too radical. Yeah. So you just, you just stayed with the, uh, the, the standard on that. But I got to tell you, when, when I read it, when I read that and you called it soil. The first thought that came to my mind was dirt. And I, and I just laughed out loud. I was like, oh man, that's great. It's so humble. It's like, you know, it's, it is. Yeah. it's like, yeah, no, it's dirt. Exactly. <laughs> and it's everywhere. And it is, it is what grows our food. It's, it's, you know, yeah, exactly. That's really important. Okay. Well, maybe people listening to this podcast will start calling the um, earth phase dirt or soil. I don't know. We, we, we might have started something here or not. At any rate, I so appreciate you taking the time today and uh, sitting down for me with a cup of tea and uh, talking about this stuff that's in your book. Again, I'm, I'm going to plug it. I can't help myself. It's an exquisite read. It sits on my poetry shelf, actually, not my Chinese medicine shelf, just, just so you know. It's gorgeous. It will mess with your mind in really delicious ways. So I encourage you guys to go buy a copy. Thank you. Hmm. I, love, I love getting feedback. And it was not an easy book. It was, it's a lot more personal than my other books, which were mostly just translations. 
And I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, useful. I don't know how, because I'm in my world. I'm in my crazy bubble of, of classics. So it makes me really happy. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, all right. So we'll do part two when I come out to Seattle. Deal. Okay. <laughs> it was delightful. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to Geological. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like it, share it with a few of your friends. And if you'd like to get more of this kind of content, I've got some extra stuff over on the Patreon page. The Patreon page allows you to help support the show by becoming a contributing subscriber. Subscribers to the show get some extra content. I got a few goodies over there that you won't find over here on the mainstream. If you're crazy about Geological, it's a way to get some extra content, and it's a way to help support the show, show your appreciation. As ever, thank you so much for listening. You're the reason that I do this podcast. Mm-hmm.